Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Hey, Tara. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm all right. Hanging in there. What's new with you? Well, you know, we're, I think I was just telling you this before we hit record, but we're doing a couple of landscaping projects at our home. And I think you are too. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that's kind of from even talking to the contractors. And I mean, this is kind of going to lead into the discussion for today. Um, There are a lot of people that have kind of decided that there's a lot of parts of their houses that they might want to fix since they're stuck in them all the time. And now is a good time to, to do so if they have the, mm-hmm. the financial means. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, I don't know. I think I've seen like a lot more people like picking up gardening and stuff like that. And especially in March, I heard, you know, like the term of like victory garden and stuff like back, um, like what they used to promote at wartime. And, you know, not not a bad idea to try your best to be as self-sustaining as possible. If you Our think- neighbor grew so much kale and they came over and they were like, oh, like if you ever need to pick any for your salads, like just let us know. And like my other neighbor that they said this to and myself have just been like kale fiends all week and it's so good. So they definitely had a very successful garden. There's so much to pick from and it's awesome that I'm getting to benefit from that yeah that's great like I can't grow anything so like we'll be absolutely screwed (laughs) but yeah the farming genes did not pass down you actually have to like practice so there you are I'm hoping we can get some like bed like boxes in next year and actually like kale to me is like something that I really would eat a lot of if we grew. So that's my hope for next year. I'm assuming the, like at this point, I don't know. I'm kind of of the opinion that the pandemic's just gonna go on for another year probably. Yeah. What have you been reading about like forecasts for like say the the economic outcomes um, and work and stuff like that? Have you read anything? Like, do you have any opinions about W versus L or anything like that? Well, so our company is based out of the US and we do have a chief medical officer and we are not going back to the office till at least January. I know there are a few more Calgary-based companies that are going back in September, which will be interesting. But I think it's also interesting that Google has said that their employees are going to be working from home until next July. So to me, that says some of these US tech companies either have access to information or they're just trying to be on the right side of history um, and know that this is kind of going to be here for a while. Yeah. Like I think it's, it's going to be here for a while, like until we have a vaccine, like there's not my understanding. And the vaccine being readily available, right? Exactly. Yeah. And um yeah, there, I mean, there's not much that we can do except just, like, try to adjust. Um, yeah, I think I'm starting to see, like, 
a noticeable disparity in like lifestyle adjustments versus what we see on like the TSX um, or, or the market. I think we've started to see like a bit of a rally and whether or not that actually is sustainable or if we do have another like huge drop. Yeah. I, I don't know where we are in terms of like, what kind of pattern does this look like in terms of markets? Um, and you don't really know until afterwards sometimes. Yeah. I haven't but, really seen yeah. it go down lately. No, but I, I am worried. Cause like, it seems like a lot of people are like out of work and, mm. um, okay. So are we inflated with like some very good returns of like some folks that like profited off of this, like quite early? Um, and do we not actually have like a lot of, productivity like in the actual labor force right like yeah I'm, I'm well, concerned yeah I mean that kind of ties into exactly what we wanted to talk about today which was kind of starting with the fact that unemployment is at an all-time high across Canada and we're edging kind of close to depression numbers for the economy in terms of unemployment yeah yeah so I was looking back at um so this is in March or April, when everything hit and everyone started losing their jobs, we were at the highest rate of unemployment since 1966. And Is that in Canada or Alberta? In Canada. Okay. Um, and then across Canada right now, we're sitting at about 12% off of June's numbers. Um, and at like the height of the Great Depression, we got up to 19% unemployment. So we're not far off. And depending on how long this goes, like how long folks are out of work, I mean, the dirty 30s were absolutely devastating. So yeah, yeah, we could, yeah, maybe we'll touch on some ways like we can kind of maybe make it through. For sure. And I mean, we kind of were pulling some of the stats a little bit before jumping on record for this episode. And Obviously, Katara and I are both based in Alberta, and Alberta had what was it, fifteen and a half percent unemployment as of June. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only province that was higher was Newfoundland. Is that correct? Newfoundland Labrador? Yeah, it was sixteen and a half, and that's that's like double. So I pulled 2019's overall numbers. So the annual number for 2019 by province, Alberta was sitting at 6.9% last year. Um, Newfoundland Labrador was at 11.9. So they haven't had as high of an increase, but like that's an additional five, almost 5% of their population that's like now out of work. And like I can't imagine if you were already struggling to then like, yeah, that's a lot. And the national rate has, has basically doubled more than doubled. I think it was at like 5%. So just slightly more than doubled um, between last year and now. And we're like over halfway through the year. So yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of people that like, I think we talked about it last season. Um, you know, we've got high amounts of consumer debt. There was something that came out before the pandemic saying, you know, a lot of Canadians are 200 bucks away from like defaulting on one of their loans or their mortgages. And it's scary. It's very scary. Did your, did your family like live through the thirties here? 
No, I think my grandma was born on my mom's side, like maybe at the beginning of the 30s, like 1929 or 1930. But she was, I feel like they were in a farm in Saskatchewan and I don't know a lot of stories about that. So they might have. But yeah. What about you? Yeah, no, um, my grandparents like my maternal grandparents were here in Saskatchewan um and like I heard the stories about um the east coast provinces sending over like salt fish like salt cod and stuff um and they didn't know what to do with it so they like and I think this was a joke but like the running joke was that like they just didn't know how to eat this stuff um And like, there was like a huge massive impact to the farms as well. Like the crops were bad for like several years. Like they barely hung on to their farm and they were like, oh yeah, when they sent us this salt fish, like we used it to like shingle the roofs because we didn't know what to do. Um, On my paternal side, like they weren't in Canada yet and they were dealing like with their own um, like political instability (laughs) at that time so um yeah there's that but yeah it didn't sound great it really did not sound great um and I think like getting back to personal finance like a lot of the stuff that my grandparents would talk about in terms of like you know what it was like to to live that way and then what my um immigrant family like would talk about I think that instilled like some very healthy habits um yeah so I don't know if we kind of want to like share those of how like if you are dealing with a shock if you are dealing with unemployment or lower lower income um what would you do do you have any yeah I mean when we talk about habits that our grandparents have um I just remember my grand grandparents more my grandma my mom's side like and maybe this was from the great depression and growing up then I guess when she was alive I didn't really know that much about the great depression so I probably wouldn't have asked but you know they will use a frying pan until it's like holding on by like a thread right like you got to use everything until it's basically you can't possibly fix it anymore or Um, It's not workable anymore. There's no, there's no way to get around it. And so, you know, maybe we will see a decrease in consumerism. I know we've seen the fast fashion industry has seen a decrease um, during this pandemic. I think obviously because people are are staying home. I know people are buying more sweatpants, but um, which, you know, I mean, totally fair. (laughs) And I heard less deodorant. So (laughs) that's interesting. But yeah, I wonder if we're going to see a, a decrease in how much we're consuming, maybe a move towards minimalism and some better quality items. I think also the secondhand market continues to blow up and continues, like I know Facebook marketplace is just like an amazing place to go when um, you're, you're looking for new or used things that maybe someone else isn't using and you can, you know, save a couple bucks on that. Or um, even there's some girl on TikTok who's doing um, one of those trade challenges. So she started with a bobby pin and she's trying to get her way to that to a house. So basically, you know, she trades a bobby pin for 
um, something and then that thing for another thing and the, in, the value increases every single time. Mm-hmm. And like last I checked, I think she was at like a MacBook or something like that. Like she's wow. gotten from a Bobby pin to a few thousand dollars. Okay. So I, I see those as kind of maybe some areas um, that we'll see an, an increase in focus from individuals if if we kind of continue on this high unemployment area rate yeah yeah i think um some of the things that like i grew up with like with my family was um you know eating at home um there was a lot of like growing your own stuff but then that went by the wayside like when my parents had to work a lot more um but it was very much like save as much as you can, um, you know, and, and help each other out a lot too. So like my dad started working when he was young and uh, like, and when I mean young, I mean like he was bringing in money for the family in like junior high and high school and it would like all be pooled and then you would like share it. And it was similar for my mom too. Like she was working, um, and like did a GED early instead of like graduating high school and stuff like that um, to start providing for herself um, and for her family and stuff like that. So it was like, yeah, like living in less space, um, living with like more family, like more extended family as well. And then there was a lot of, like, I found it to be very generous. Like, even though folks had less, like, I feel like there was a lot more sharing when everybody was poor, if that makes sense. Well, and even with more people home, you just see your neighbors more, right? Like, uh, you know, our neighbor Mm -hmm. came over to lend or give us some kale. Like I mentioned at the beginning, like, and I think we were just kind of all like, we're all like my husband, me and um, the other lady that lives in our kind of complex um or duplex or townhouse or whatever you want to call it we were all just sitting on the front lawn on I think it was like a Saturday afternoon and you know enjoying the sun or or I think it actually might have been like a Tuesday at like 4 30 or something like after work but you know if we were back to the way things were like that would never have been the case. Like we wouldn't have been sitting outside on a weekday or whatever. We would Mm -hmm. have been in the office or on a plane or so even just the ability to be generous when you run into people or see them more, I think definitely. Yeah. Yeah, And like, I, I don't know. I think it's been good for like um, small group connections and like smaller connections as well for, you know, not going out to, to restaurants when you're just like sitting with like your partner or people, you know, like you're actually like socializing at other people's houses or in their backyards or on their front porches. Um, and I don't know, I, there's, there's kind of like a different sense of that. Like when you're not being served, like when you're serving others, when you're sharing your own food, um, and not like off a plate that someone else has prepared, I think there's like a different sentiment there. Um, but I might just be like trying to put a really nice, like idealistic spin on this of like, this is the silver lining of like not having a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's obviously good to try and have a positive perspective, but I think like 
and and maybe with like community being that that that's a great thing that we can focus on but i i do think there's also going to be some detrimental aspects of this financially to a lot of people i mean the millennials are just getting like part of my language but absolutely fucked like we yeah. have lived through so many once in a lifetime events like even if you think about like starting early like 9-11 right like 9-11 mm-hmm. happened and then 2008 happened and then if you live in Cal- more specifically calgary alberta and 2014 happened and then a global pandemic happened like it's how many once in a lifetime events are, is our generation going to live through and you know how are we ever going to get ahead financially yeah and i feel like some folks from 2008 and when i say some i mean a lot of folks like did not actually recover. Like, I think we had significant unemployment. We saw an increase in gig work. Underemployment. Underemployment. Uh, Yeah, and like precarious work, basically, right? You know, we saw um, an increase in wage stagnation and even wage depression across Canada. Um, So now we've got folks and like, and and I think Gen X will experience this as well because they may have, could you, well, could you imagine Gen X or Gen Z? No, Gen X. Because could you imagine buying your first home in 2006, let's say like at the peak Mm. and now dealing with this, like you might have a mortgage if you haven't already foreclosed through all of this chaos that we've been experiencing, um, because maybe your wages continue to go down, your work continues to be precarious, you're stuck. I mean, at least the interest rates low, but like if you already are in a house that was already overvalued in 2014, now watching it go down, plummet, plummet, and like I do kind of feel like we're reliving like wide scale like a coal miner town where the mortgages that you have out on these properties are like 400 times as much as what the market value is and at some point if you have no work if you're laid off or if you're not able to like make the payments like is it going to be like the late 80s early 90s when people just walk into their well I guess we can't do that now because everything's online but you know, symbolically just like hand mortgage brokers their keys. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, people will do a lot to make sure that mortgage payments are made. And obviously with COVID and the, um, I don't know where it's at in terms of um, financial institutions deferring mortgages, but eventually those payments become due. Yeah. And I haven't heard of any extending it past the six months. So we're coming pretty close because six months could be, I think, October at the earliest, if I'm remembering correctly, when they started. Well, and Uh, CERB is ending basically at the end of September as well. So all of these measures, you know, the $2,000 a month that maybe was paying someone's mortgage. Yeah. And this is why I'm worried about having like a W recovery, even in the market, because we can see like everything that's propping this up, like everything that's allowing folks to continue to pay their mortgage right now, to continue to go to the grocery stores right now, to continue to do whatever kind of um, consumerism that they can, even though we've seen like a drop, it might all end in October. 
and then we have like a spike of cases probably in September when the kids go back to school, when the kids go back to school. So we might have it like realigned with, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know, but we might have like all of the social supports that were put in might all end at exactly the same time that we have our, you know, quote unquote, second wave. Um, which I think, so when I was like going back through different recessions um, and contractions and depressions and that kind of thing, that to me reminds me of, so we had the market crash in 1929, but we also had um, a lot of unemployment or a lot of like low paid labor at that point as well. There were a lot of strikes at that time for fair wages and fair work and fair hours. Um, And then right after the crash, so we had a bunch of people out of work already or underpaid. Then we had a market crash. And then we had um, in Canada and Alberta specifically a bunch of crops fail. So then we lost agriculture as well. Um, So yeah, it got real bad like real quick. And it took almost 15 years to, to actually recover from that. And I don't know if like at a government level, we're actually doing what needs to be done to prevent that from happening again. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting to think about. And as, as we were talking, I just thought of like in Alberta, obviously this is not including any of the natural disasters like the Fort mm-hmm. McMurray fires or the Calgary flood. So there's even more kind of once in a lifetime things that have, you know, continued to happen to basically not the baby boomers, um, but, you yeah. know, Gen X and the millennials that are, you know, trying to, you know, get jobs that actually pay a decent amount yeah. and, um, you know, get mortgages on houses that are, you know, multiple six figures. And it's yeah. going to be interesting. Like, you know, we've seen these statistics before, but I think they continue to get worse where, you know, people are so close to going bankrupt or being mm-hmm. on the brink of not being able to pay bills where they have to make a choice mm-hmm. as to which bill to pay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, like we can talk about like little things that you can do if you're like still earning income and like where to cut expenses. I think trying to get additional work at this point is a non-starter because like, I don't think you could easily pick up an Uber shift. And I heard a lot of crazy stuff happening with like, um, the delivery service gig work. Oh, really? Um, You can't get an Uber shift? I, well, like, is anybody taking Ubers right now? I don't know. I have Like if you so were, yeah, <laughs> if you were brand new at it, I, I don't think so. And, um, a lot of the folks that were even doing the delivery service when all the restaurants went from in person to delivery, you were like, oh, okay. So like they should be okay. But there was like weird stuff going on with the shifts. Cause they wanted to like, I think from what I heard, and I, I, I don't actually know anyone on the inside of this, so this might just be speculation. In fact, it is speculation. But it seemed like they were trying to like divvy up the shifts, um, maybe equally or something. So 
people who were having like three or four delivery shifts before there was like an influx of new drivers and now they went down to like one shift a week instead of three or four. Um, so it could just be that even though we were ordering in delivery, we still weren't ordering as much um, because we all lost our jobs. Or, um, you know, it could be because the people that needed to like add income went and tried to be like new delivery drivers or something like that. I don't know. Um, but it wasn't great. Basically we didn't have enough work for everyone and, um, we didn't have any kind of, we, I don't think we even would serve. We didn't have enough social support to actually like keep this going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously if there's a way you can get creative on bringing in some extra money, whether that's selling stuff on Facebook marketplace or, um, you know, like Upwork or freelancer, like taking on a little bit of online work. Obviously that's better than nothing, but I mean, that's not a long-term solution, right? Like working 40 hours or like looking for a job and then trying to pick up random shifts or random project work isn't the most ideal situation for most Canadians. Mm -hmm. And if you're in like a caregiving role as well, so if you either have like older parents oh, or totally. kids or somebody that you have to look after, um, you know, even 40 hours a week is already not manageable. So you kind of reach like, um, there's only so many hours in a day, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you reach like the maximum amount of like what you can work. Um, and if that's not enough to like pay your bills and like keep food on the table, if that happens to enough folks, and honestly, I think prior to this, we should have been in a position where that shouldn't have happened to anyone personally. Um, I think we could have made this work, but at this point, um, we should definitely look for something to, to make this work large scale. So before we get into that, do you want to talk about any like individual things we can do? <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty common personal finance advice. Like, you know, if you can find a source of extra income, absolutely. If you can cut your expenses somehow, you know, negotiate. I always say like everything is negotiable right now. Like, can you negotiate your car insurance? I know people are getting like $800 checks back when they were saying like, yeah, I'm not driving like basically at all anymore because they're not commuting to work. Um, you know, those kind of things where there's actually... Uh, a large amount of financial gain. Like, I, I guess I'm less focused on you buying, you know, $2 Tim Hortons or $4 Starbucks than I am about like, can you save, can you negotiate $200 off a month on your rent? Right? Like focus on the big money areas that like the big expenses and try and get those down would be my advice. Um, and any extra money that you do have coming in, if you're in that sort of a position, I would be putting it, just holding it in cash right now. Like I, I think there is opportunity to learn to invest and um, invest in the market. But I think if you're kind of on the edge of not having an emergency fund, those kind of things, like I think that holding onto that cash is much more important. Yeah. And I think um, on the credit side of it, though, I don't love credit. One of the things that I would recommend is if you are still employed, um, especially if you're in like a two, like a partnered household and you're both employed, I would say like, get a line of credit. You don't totally. have to use it, but, um, 
it's there as kind of a last resort lifeline if you if you absolutely need it. Um, you know, another thing that like very poor people do um, is become very adept at learning to pay off like a credit card with this loan and this line of credit. And like, it's a terrible cycle to get into, but sometimes it's what actually in our, it's, it's how you, you feed yourself in these situations. Yeah. Unfortunately. And I mean, make sure I actually just went through the process of getting a line of credit. So make sure you are shopping around and asking different financial institutions. Um, I, this is obviously not sponsored, but I was able to secure a line of credit with Tangerine for prime plus, what did I say to you? Two and a half percent or something like that. So just under 5% for an unsecured line of credit, which is the best I've been able to find so far. Um, obviously if it's like a home equity line of credit, you can get a lower rate and stuff, but you know, just to have that there too, um, is a little bit of, of peace of mind, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's basically it, um, for everything that I can think of. Cause you, you do, you just max out what you can cut and you max out what you can earn. And I one thing that I want to like make very clear is that if anyone is struggling with like job loss, um, not being able to find a job, the CERB is not enough. You don't qualify for CERB. Um, EI has run out or any of these um, scenarios. Like it is not your fault. You're not lazy. You're not stupid you're not undeserving in some way, shape, or form. Um, I think personally, you've just unfortunately been forgotten by the system that we live in because we are, we are at a point even now globally, like we should be able to do this. We should be able to support people through these kind of shocks. Um, Agreed. And it's not any one individual's fault. There's nothing that you did wrong. It's not your resume. It's not your look. It's not, you know, your mindset. It's not any of those things. It's you're not um, a bad worker. Like you're mm -hmm. not a bad person, you know, and I would like, those, those are really important things to remember. And if you are struggling with anxiety or depression around job loss, cause it is a big piece of our identity um, I would highly recommend if, if you can get in to see your family doctor or, um, even a phone call with your family doctor, getting a referral to an AHS psychologist. Um, this was something that, um, someone close to us recently did. And the wait time to get a, an appointment was only a couple of weeks. So better than I thought it was going to be. And obviously if, if AHS or whatever your governing body, um, if the psychologist is with, with them, then it, then it's covered. You don't have to pay that $200 an hour or, and worry about your benefits, not covering it. Or if you don't have benefits anymore, like this is an option for people to get help that they need, especially in these like desperate, weird, shitty times. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that kind of leads me into like what we should be asking like of our government and of our leaders um, and everything at 
this time. Oh, so we the have, list is long. The list is very Buckle long. Up, Tara. <laughs> yeah. And like we did that episode several months ago now, I think in February or early March, um, where we talked about all the proposed ideas that have now gone through in Alberta for um, eroding public health, um, uh, socialized health care, um, and keeping our primary care uh, physicians public, accessible, mm-hmm. and numerous, and not overworked. Um, that didn't happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. They are like, I can't believe, well, I can't believe, but I'm so disgusted that they pushed all that stuff through. I'm so disgusted that us in Alberta, especially rural Alberta, is dealing with a loss in primary care physicians, um, not being able to staff their emergency departments, not being able to facilitate, you know, things like emergency cesareans, not having surgeons available in their hospitals during a pandemic. Um, I always say, like... I'm not, or I'm so surprised, but then I'm like, not really surprised by anything this government does. And if that sounds like kind of tongue in cheek or a little bit like attitude-y, I'm I'm not sorry, but like, we have to start voting better for people that aren't going to completely fuck up our healthcare system. Like it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. It's atrocious to be honest. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I think we have to stop like buying into um, a weird kind of blame game. Um, I feel like, especially like Alberta specifically, but I'm sure there are other jurisdictions that do this. We're like not very likely to say blame the person we voted for or blame the person who said it was someone else's fault. Um, And I think this government is very good at passing the buck you know it's Mm. the city's fault or it's the federal government's fault or it's the preceding government's fault and it's like at a certain point i don't actually care whose fault it is um you're our elected representative and you should be fixing it um yeah let's stop with this game of it's this person's fault it's this person's fault like at the end of the day it doesn't freaking matter but like let's do some things and fix some things. Yeah. And so now I can see um, like bouncing off um, socialized healthcare um, and publicly funded like medical care to the amount that we currently had it um, spinning off into like harm reduction. Cause I thought, how is this, how can you look at this policy then see a pandemic coming and then not just like table it indefinitely Um, And then I saw what they did to safe consumption sites. And I was like, oh, they actually don't care about harm reduction. I really feel that um, they look at individual people and they blame us for systemic failings. Um, Because the thing is about harm reduction, and especially like when it comes to safe consumption sites, you can't help someone with whatever it is they're struggling with, whether it be a broken leg or um, like a fentanyl addiction, if they're already dead, like if I break my leg severely and get like gangrene, if that doesn't get treated in a certain amount of time, like it doesn't matter. You die. die. 
And the same thing goes for safe consumption sites. Like if you're actually looking to help people, you have to ensure that those people are alive. Truth. Yeah. And so you mentioned like negotiating insurance too. They also like took away insurance caps. So even with like a reduction in like travel time and like, I know our insurance is like, well, how long do you commute to work? And we're like now fucking nothing. Um, We haven't had that discussion. And I know folks who have seen their insurance bills for car insurance, for house insurance, for all those things go up when our asset values are falling and our use of things like cars and those kind of assets are also falling or are like are also going down. Like we're not driving the same distances and our private insurance rate are, are going up. So you did this at a time where like the individual Albertan, and I don't know if this has been done in other jurisdictions, but like we needed a break. And instead you allowed us to be gouged. Yeah. And like, that's disturbing. So yeah, I I didn't mean to talk about those things. I was going to talk about like how governments can provide us with, you know, jobs in the interim. So unless you have something to add to that, like maybe. No, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, Uh, my segue. it, (laughs) It hasn't been a good year, like in terms of, you know, our, we're seeing our expenses are going up and people's incomes are falling and that's not okay. No, it's not okay. Uh, at all actually. Um, because like at the end of the day, like we drive this economy, we drive this economy. Okay. Like we might not be the people that are like benefiting the most of this, but it is the folks that earn T4 income that drive this damn economy. Um, it, yeah. And it's the folks that also don't earn any income that support this economy. We saw that when the caregiving roles were toast, people died. People Mm -hmm. fucking died. Um, Anyway, moving right along. So what what could we do? So I looked back at uh, 1929 in Canada. Our prime minister at the time decided that- Who was our prime minister? Bennett for the most part, and then uh, Mackenzie King at at other parts of the depression. So Bennett is the problem. Well, King is also a problem for a variety of fucked up reasons. Um, but like for the parallels that I'm driving uh, drawing between like some of the provincial governments that we have now, and also um, the Fed's decision to cut CERB at this particular point in time, I think we're aligning with a similar path that that Bennett took. I think, I hope I'm saying that name right. Anyway, whatever, old dude. Yeah. So he basically was of the mindset, like, we will not be giving handouts. We will not be supporting lazy people who don't want to get a job. So this, I think this rhetoric was probably already happening because there was a bunch of strikes going on before. So I think there was a lot of like anti-labor attitude, like anti-working people attitude um, from the government to begin with. And like also anyone else that had like a vested interest in like paying people less or like having them in unsafe conditions. So he was like, we're not, we're not doing social programs. We're not. So what we see with like um, FDR and the new deal, like as in a, I mean, it wasn't ineffective, but 
as minimal as it was, um, we didn't even have that. Like we didn't have any kind of like empathy with like the average person when they were staring down almost 20% employment. Then people started like riding the rails. People started doing unsafe things. Um, people started protesting. People started um, getting really, really angry because there was no work. It wasn't that you weren't trying to work. It's that you weren't working at all. And then any of the like um, benefits, like trying to get food, trying to pay for housing, like trying to do any of that, like there was no unemployment insurance. There wasn't anything like that. So you had to go to your like own individual municipality, which may have been rocked as well by this, depending like where you lived. Like I can't imagine like at that time living in a small, very, very, very small town with no work would have been very fun. Um, and then trying to beg like city council for whatever money that they had when like people are walking away from whatever property they were able to own, right? Anyway, so he was of the mindset that anybody who was not working and was struggling and starving and children who were dying and all that kind of stuff, they were just being lazy. So he did not help. Um, then people started riding the rails. So the solution that was determined was work camps. So they rounded Good. up. Yeah. This, I'm sure this ends well. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so they rounded up all these fellas um, that weren't working and that were riding the rails or whatever. And they were like, here, like work over here for, I believe it was like 20 cents a day, which even in 1930, 1935 money was very, very minimal. Like you could not afford anything. Also, if you walked away from the work camp, you weren't allowed to come back. So if you were like, this is crap conditions, um, we're in like bunk houses that are too close together, which reminded me of what the migrant workers are going through right now. We're not being paid enough, which reminds me of like the conversation of like, well, you shouldn't be on serve. You should just take whatever job we offer you, even if it's not enough money to actually feed or clothe yourself or house yourself. And yeah. And then if they walked away, they, they weren't allowed to like get any kind of benefits because the benefits came from the work camps which was not enough and like they were just basically like starving people um the pictures the images of these men at that time like they're just walking skeletons so um what did they do they walked off on mass there was massive like work camp protests uh it went on for about like two months there was a lot of big stuff in vancouver i found a really interesting picture of a group of mums to abolish the work camps surrounding the protesters in a, in a heart in a beautiful heart and this is like in the 1930s like um even knowing like what women did um when push came to shove like in the past i was like I was in awe and it reminded me of what um, I think it's albertamoms.ca is doing for the return to school and the support for teachers and stuff like that. Like don't mess with moms maybe. And so it actually ended in a police riot in Regina on July 1st, um, which was Dominion Day then, which we know in Alberta because for some reason all our UC MLAs decided wishing everyone a happy Dominion Day instead of a happy Canada Day. I don't fucking know why. Um, but yeah, so it ended in a riot. Um, I think 
the the camp life like improved um but i think that had most it it mostly had to do with um a change in office more than it had to do with anything else like they basically they basically squashed it some positives that came out of this time and like when i was like looking through it it was like and then this strike happened and then this strike happened and like ah there's a saskatchewan town and i was like I haven't heard that name in so long and I can't believe they striked. And it was like, anyway, I'll, I'll find it. I'll send a link. It's easily accessible guys, but it was strike after strike after strike protest after protest after protest. And then when you look at what happened afterwards, we got unemployment insurance. We got an eight hour work day. We got safe working conditions. We got a five day work week. We got all this stuff because everybody kind of, rallied together around everyone else like the moms surrounded these protesters in a heart and like that just that that really spoke to me so when i look at what we have now when i look at specifically in alberta where we've laid off um education assistance at the time when our students with special needs needed the most um because there's a lot of those kids that can't interact with their teacher um mm -hmm online. And then we laid off a bunch of teachers. We're still laying off teachers. We don't want to hire teachers back, but we want all the schools to go back at full capacity without really any safety measures um, or caps or extra cleaning supplies. They laid off janitors. They're not rehiring janitors. The buses are still being filled to the same level. They're not going to rehire bus drivers or get new bus drivers or have anything like that. Um, and to me, it almost feels like we're sending our children and our teachers to these work camps, to these unsafe conditions, because people are complaining we don't have jobs. So we'll like get the kids back to school, like then it'll be fine. But like, this is not safe. This is not profitable. It doesn't make economic sense. So even when we see like the small gains, like month over month, this month, uh, 2020 to like July, August, 2019, we are down in Alberta, 174,000 jobs. Thanks, Notley. <laughs> yeah. Had to throw it in there. Had yeah. to do it. Like, this is just bad decision, decision after decision that doesn't actually support people in need. After yeah. just to flow money to companies that just walk away from us, like they give corporate tax cuts. And then all of a sudden those companies just leave because there aren't, there's no work. It doesn't matter if we give them tax cut after tax cut, there's no work, there's no industry, there's nothing. And, well, and a lot of times what people don't realize is those companies are already not paying any tax like mm -hmm. you can say that the tax rate is 50 percent, but if you give enough deductions that their effective tax rate is nothing or mm -hmm. if they can bring their income down to zero with all of these deductions or giving them it doesn't matter if it's a hundred percent they're still not paying tax and so we have to stop you know catering to these corporations that are neither moral nor immoral because a corporation is not a person, right? It cannot be moral or a or immoral. They're amoral. And yeah. we have to start focusing on the individuals in our society. And so, 
you know, I think this is probably a, a commercial for a future episode, but I'm really curious to see how um, a universal basic income might play into some of this stuff because mm-hmm. you can't just tell people they're lazy when a global pandemic is wiping jobs out. Yeah, when there's no jobs. And if you continue to starve the people and tell them they're lazy when there is actually just no opportunity, and then you see vast amounts of income and wealth and lifestyle uh, disparity, people will riot again. People will protest again. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying, like, what is your end game here? Because you're starving people, killing people, putting them in unsafe conditions, and then you don't, like, you're surprised. In the 30s that were riding and they didn't have to worry about, you know, passing around a deadly virus either. So that, like, just Mm -hmm. adds another layer of complexity. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know if there's a silver bullet here but we definitely need to wake up and start making some policy changes that are more in favor of the marginalized groups. Exactly. Yeah. And when you speak to basic income as well um, and having the corporations like effectively paying zero tax, we've got a lot of folks that effectively pay zero tax or definitely um, when you look at like their overall income and wealth, and the gains that they make on that and their ability to insulate themselves when we have these kind of shocks versus someone who has nothing, no assets to their name or anything. I think we also could do a lot with a wealth tax to ensure that we don't have people profiting off of other people's suffering, or we have folks making decisions who are completely insulated from these kinds of crises um, and just have no idea about what the average person is going through. Like they look at these job numbers and they think it's just a percentage, but like I'm doing fine. Um, You know, I I calculated, like we have, let's say 4 million people in Alberta. That's 600,000 people that are out of work. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Like, you know, there was another statistic. um, I was talking with a a gentleman the other day, like one in four Albertans are on CERB. Like we all probably know someone, whether they've, you know, made it public or not, because maybe they feel shame around it, but we all probably know someone who's on CERB. Yeah. Oh yeah. Receiving these benefits. So yeah. Like, let's not be judgy about this. Like there's 600,000 of us that are Mm -hmm. needing these benefits at this time. And we've got to do a better job of setting up our society to support shit like this, to be honest, because this obviously, like, as I alluded to earlier, we have all of these once in a lifetime things like that obviously means that they're not once in a lifetime. Like we need to set it up so that when these things do happen, we can absolutely weather the storm. And I want to say too, like those 600,000 people, they don't fully capture because we know that there are issues with tracking the unemployment rates and tracking like non-wage labor and that kind of thing. So it's not just 600,000 people. It's an additional 600,000 people on top of everyone else who has just been so um, cut from the, the labor force 100%. that they're not even looking anymore. 
You know, we have folks that don't even access their benefits because they haven't had income for so long. They just don't do their taxes and then they live on the streets. Yeah. You know, no, there's obviously there's, you know, that's a very rough number and I'm sure it's um, underinflated. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, two things before we kind of like wrap this up. Um, okay people talk about, you know, our debt to GDP and like our kids are going to pay for this. But the thing is, if we have six, um, a minimum of 600,000 people in Alberta alone off work right now, I can guarantee you some of those folks have kids. And right now your choice is saying, I would rather these children starve than Mm -hmm. have the opportunity to pay this off in the future. I think they would rather have food now be able to maybe not die of starvation and then yeah pay it off later but and the gdp is such a shitty like metric to measure things against too like when people do that yeah. i'm just like you don't know what you're talking about exactly I mean, when, when the government takes on debt like that's what they're supposed to do like, exactly they don't like they can print more money. Like, I'm not saying obvi- obviously there are downsides to just printing and printing and printing money, like inflated um, economies and currencies. And yeah, I'm not suggesting we're like Zimbabwe or anything like that. But Jesus Christ, like, we can print some more money if we need to. We can go into debt. Like, it's ridiculous to think that, like, that's like, that is literally what the government is for to help us mm-hmm. get through these challenging times. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And at a certain point, like our debt to GDP is actually very low, even though it is um, substandard when just looking at it alone as a kind of like metric of how we're doing overall. But like, shouldn't we leverage that at some point? Like, but also, who cares what, what our debt to in- GDP is? Yeah. Right? Like, well, and that's what we're told as individuals. Like, take on student debt, take on home debt, take on these kind of things, and then, you know, figure it out. I don't know if that's necessarily like the best thing going forward, but is it a great band-aid right now to ensure people don't die? Yeah, definitely. Um, can put food on their table. Yeah, exactly. We hope so, you enjoyed this week's episode. My As always, pink tax rebate that I was thinking about today, and, and it's kind of funny um, because I didn't tell you about it before. But this is all news to me. So yeah. I think it's time that we start thinking about debt forgiveness, mm. a wealth tax, and a basic income. Because these are the things that we need, and we need to start getting our politicians and our elected officials on fucking board to save people's lives. Period.